You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Mark Clark, who wrote the book, The Problem of God, that, that series of messages we did on reasons to believe and have faith right after Easter, he came to know Christ because he'd been challenged to read the Bible, and so he read the Bible for a year before he ever went to church. And so because of what he had read in the book of Acts and in Romans and all the things that happened in the church, he thought that when he went to church, it was going to be like that, like in, in the days of Acts, you know, and people are being hauled off to jail, and it's just gritty. And then he walked in the church, and it was decorated like his grandmother's living room, you know. It just wasn't what he was expecting. Whatever your idea of church may be, whatever your background or your perspective, what we need to do is we need to come to God's Word and find Jesus' definition of the church in God's Word, because He's the one that designed it. And here at Faith Church, our mission is to build the church that our friends and neighbors will join and that our children will lead. And if we're going to do that, we need to build the church that Jesus pictured, not the one that we picture, not the one that we have in our heads. I don't want my children to lead the church that I have in my head one day. I want my children to lead the church that Jesus had in his heart and his mind when he established it. In the very first message, I told you that one of the most common images that comes up when you do a Google search for church is a little white church in the middle of a field with no parking. You know, you just have have to ride a horse to get there. Um, And that's the common conception of what church is. Because in our culture right now, churches dot the landscape in rural and suburban areas, but they're not very frequent within the city. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. One is the fact that over the last 150 years, cities have grown incredibly fast, and churches have not kept up with planting new congregations within the city. Another reason is that urban sprawl is constantly moving people, people that maybe start off in the city and then they begin to advance in their career and they want to have a house that's a little bit bigger with a little bit more land and so they move out into the suburbs and churches that are within the city that grow and are reaching people, they find more and more of their congregation live outside the city and when it comes time for them to build, they can more readily find land outside the city. So they move outside of the city where their congregants are and where there's land that's more readily available. So because of those factors, we have this idea in our minds that church is something that people do in conservative rural areas, but church is not something that is prominent in the city centers. But that is something that we don't find within the New Testament. In fact, we find the reverse in the scriptures. And Paul would go and do ministry in some rural context like Galatia, which was this mountainous region. But the majority of his time planting churches was in cities. And actually, in the cities that were the largest, they saw the greatest amount of success. Church historians have found that the larger the city, the higher the conversion rate was within that city. The early church flourished most in the city, And it flourished most in the largest cities. And so if you have this idea that church is only something that people who live in farmland do, or people who are conservative and live in flyover states or red states, then you you need to come back to Acts and see that the church started predominantly and flourished most in the most broken places where people were packed in together. 
And in fact, it's really interesting. If you look at the time that Jesus appeared on the scene and started his movement of the church, it was a time where there were cities that were larger than ever before because of the things that the Romans were doing in building their empire. In fact, there would be centuries that passed where they wouldn't wouldn't see cities as large as the ones like Antioch and Corinth and Rome. And so Jesus came at this moment where all of the people were gathering in cities like never before. And so what I want us to see in this passage of Scripture today is Jesus' church, the church that he had designed, the church that he had established. I want you to see how it flourished in the second city that it ever encountered. The first city was the city of Jerusalem. The second city that it really flourished in was the city of Antioch. And so in Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, we'll read about how the church flourished in Antioch. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings, or news of these things, came unto the ears of the church which was at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad." And exhorted them all, encouraged them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost, and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church, and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians." First in Antioch. In a couple of weeks, it'll be the first Sunday of November, and we will celebrate our 36th anniversary as an organized church. Robert Helms came to this area with the the vision of starting a new Free Will Baptist church. He started in Newburgh. They met in the Newburgh Town Hall for a while. It came time for them to have to move out of Newburgh. And so they moved into a community center in Paradise, but it wasn't exactly Paradise in the building that they were in because there was no indoor plumbing. And so they had any kind of function. They had to bring in their own water. If you wanted to use the restroom, you had to go to the outhouse. So it wasn't an ideal scenario. Meanwhile, there's a congregation here located at this property, Faith Temple Baptist, and their pastor unexpectedly passed away, and they were struggling. They were having a difficulty paying their mortgage. There was fear that they might lose the property next door, which was the parsonage. And through an incredible series of events, God bringing Brother Helms together with someone who belonged to this church, but whose mother was in the hospital, and bringing June Scales and Linda Alvis together on June Scales, uh, Mary Kate Route, or Avon Route, and there was this, this conversation that happened. And the New Life Free Will Baptist Church in Paradise merged with the Faith Temple Baptist Church here in Chandler, and we've been located in this location ever since as Faith Free Will Baptist Church. And I love that story because in, in, I see the details of God placing us here in this town, in this place, and I believe it was for a reason. The last 36 years have been the testimony of God working through the congregation that was formed 
in those days. In the beginning of this passage, we read that there were Christians who were running from Jerusalem because of the persecution that arose because of Stephen. There's so much happening here in this passage that is so good, and I just want to jump to the end and share some incredible things with you. But let's start at the beginning. The first verse that we read, now they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. Stephen was the first deacon that the church had. He was a man of God, mightily used of the Lord, and because he was doing these incredible things, the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem called him in and put him on trial. And Stephen took that as an opportunity to preach the gospel unto them and tell them how they should trust in Jesus too, and they didn't like that very much. And then in that moment, Stephen has a vision of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he tells this to all of these religious leaders, and they are incensed and in a rage. They haul him out of the city, and they stone him to death. And after this moment, the Jewish leaders, they they basically declare war on the Christian church, the church of Jesus. And so many of the believers, they scatter, they run for their lives. And a man named Saul begins going around Jerusalem and arresting people who were followers of Jesus and putting them in jail. And then he asks if he can go further out. And so these Christians are scattering, they're running away. But through those difficult circumstances and in the midst of that adversity, God is sending people to cities like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And in those places, they're talking about Jesus. It would have been easy to talk about Jesus. He'd changed their lives. He'd changed everything about them. They'd seen him do these incredible things. They had seen him raised from the dead. They'd heard Peter preach about it. They'd experienced these moving things in Jerusalem. And as they're going, they're telling people, and people are starting to believe. And originally, they're talking first to Jews, but God used this to do something incredible. And here's the first principle that I want you to get a hold of. God does this again and again, not just in Acts and not just in our church, but again and again throughout history. God takes the evil that's meant for the church and uses it to bring about greater good. They were trying to squash the church. Do you get this picture? The Jewish leaders are trying to squash the church, and when they do, it just explodes into these other cities and starts to spread. It's kind of like trying to knock down a wasp nest, right? And now they're just everywhere. That's what happens. They try to squash the church, and suddenly they just spread to all of these places. God uses the evil that was meant for the church to bring about a greater good. I feel like God did that in 1980 when he brought new life and faith together. I feel like God has done that time and again in my tenure here. There have been adversities and difficulties and struggles, and God has used every one of them to bring about a greater good, more glory, more redemption. So they start to spread, and as they spread, God is doing something in all of these places, like in Antioch. And as God put us here, God has used it for the good of Chandler. That's the reason that one of our values is we're not just merely in Chandler. We are for Chandler. We don't feel that it's just happenstance or random that we're here. We believe that God has us in Chandler for a reason, for a purpose. So they're in Antioch, but they're also for Antioch. They're there for Antioch. And as they're fleeing for their lives, they're sharing the gospel with the Jews only. And it's really helpful if you, if you can make this distinction in your mind. The, the New Testament uses the terms Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Greeks two ways, interchangeably. All right? It uses it 
for an ethnic purpose, first of all. Jews are those that are Jewish in ethnicity. They were descendants of Abraham. Gentiles or Greeks are those that are not Jewish. They're not descendants of Abraham. But there's another way that the New Testament uses these two terms. And because it was so similar, because often people who were Jews, they were descendants of Abraham because they were typically religious, and people who were not, who were Greeks, were not religious, or they followed pagan gods, often it'll refer to the Jews referring to those who are religious, and Greeks to those who are irreligious, who don't believe in God. And so... Here in this passage, we see that God is doing something amongst different ethnic groups, but he's also doing something among people who are both religious and irreligious, those who are close to God and those who are not close to God. Now, verse 20 of Acts 11 tells us that some of these believers, some of these Jews that spread, they were from Cyprus and Cyrene. And when you just read those two words, those two cities on a page, you might think that they're close, like Boonville and Chandler, but they're not. They're spread apart. Cyprus is this island in the Mediterranean Sea, not too far from Antioch, but Cyrene is this place over in Africa, what is modern-day Libya, and these were people that had traveled to Jerusalem for some reason, while in Jerusalem, converted and become religious followers of the Jews, and then become Christians, and so when they walk into Antioch, they're a mix of all kinds of things. They're from Cyprus and Cyrene, but they were Jews, but now they believe in Jesus. And so when they walk into the synagogue, which would have been the local Jewish gathering in Antioch, people probably would have looked at them like, are you a Jew or not? Because they were from all kinds of different backgrounds, they were totally comfortable with talking to whoever. And so while the Jews, who were ethnically and religiously Jewish, walked into the synagogue and started talking to the other Jews about Jesus who fulfilled all the things they'd been learning in the Old Testament. These guys that were from Cyprus and Cyrene, maybe when they walked in, they got the same look that I get when I walk into a hospital room to visit some of you. I walk in and the nurse says, oh, is this your grandson? And I say, no, I'm the pastor of the church. And they say, what? No. Did you just graduate? No, I've been there 13 years. What? And so when these guys walk into the synagogue and they're like, hey, we're, we want to talk to you about Jesus, the Messiah, they're like, how do you even know any of this stuff? Are you even really Jews? So they're talking to, to the Greeks. And suddenly, the message of the gospel is crossing not only lines of ethnicity, but ta- crossing lines of morality and class and social standing. You see, they weren't just talking to people who were the same skin tone as them or spoke the original language as them, but people who lived their lives completely different from them, people who were nowhere near as moral as they were, people who had very different views on marriage than they did, people that participate in things that they would never participate in. And the message of the gospel begins to cross over these lines from religious to irreligious, from Jew to Greek. And what happens next is amazing. Now, before this moment, the believers, when they would go and they would preach, they would always start with Jews because you're going to talk about religious things with people that are religious, right? Even Paul, later on, he would go to new cities. He would always start at the synagogue 
because there in the synagogue he could find people that knew the Old Testament, knew the prophets, and he could talk to them about how the prophets had been speaking of Jesus all along, and he could tell them, Jesus has come. He's fulfilled all of those prophecies. We can believe in him. And he'd stay there and preaching that Jesus had fulfilled all those things until finally the traditional Jews would kick him out. And he'd take all of the people who had listened to him and now believed in Jesus, and then he would use that group to go and reach the irreligious Greeks in the city. He would have a core group that he could start a church with and disciple these irreligious people who were coming to know Christ. This, what happens here in Antioch with Barnabas and Paul, would actually set up Paul's model of ministry and all of the cities he would go to after this. This is basically Paul's internship with Barnabas in Antioch. And God does something. I just want you to see the incredible thing that God does here. What was the last verse that we read? Verse 26. Look at that with me, okay? He brought him back to Antioch, and they, a whole year they're assembling these people who are believers, and it was first in Antioch that they were called Christians. Now, we use this word Christian all the time now, but it was, had never been used before, and they started using it in this moment. Why? Why did they start calling them Christians in Antioch? I've been reading Tim Keller's Center Church, and he talks at length about the gospel's impact in, in cities, and he says that Antioch was a city of cities. It was a fortress of fortresses. If you've ever gone to a large city, you know that often in large cities there are different neighborhoods that center around different ethnic groups, right? That's the place where all the Greek people live. That's the place where all the Germans congregate. That's Chinatown. That's Little Italy, right? Because as people would immigrate in, they would find people who spoke the same language as them, that ate the same foods as them, and they'd hang out with those people, work with those people. And so you'd have this large city, but they were kind of quarantined off in all these different groups. Well, Keller says that when Silius, who was the, the Roman who built up Antioch, as all these people were coming in, their nations would be conquered, and they would become a part of the Roman, and they would go to the city looking for places of employment. As they came in, Silius was building the city, and he built it not only with a wall all the way around the city to keep attackers out, he built walls within the city to separate all of the neighborhoods. Because when you came into a new city, you found the people that you identified with, and if there was ever a panic, if there was ever a riot, if there was ever a fight... You got with the people that you knew, that spoke the same language as you, that had the same color of skin as you, and so you'd get into your own neighborhood, and there you'd be protected. You had your own walls. And so within Antioch, there are these neighborhoods of people from Africa and Asia and India, and I'm not exaggerating. There are all people from all of these different places in Antioch, and now the Jews are coming in, and they all have their own individual cities, but when the Jews that believe in Jesus come, they start talking to everyone about the message of Jesus, and now there are suddenly gatherings of people that are from Cyprus and Cyrene and Phoenicia and Jerusalem that all believe in Jesus. And so before in Antioch, when you saw a group of people, you could say, oh, there, there's the, the Jews. Oh, there's the, the Asians. There's the Indians. There's the Phoenicians. But then they say, well, who's that group? Well, that's a bunch of people that, they're from all over, but they all believe in this guy named Christ. They're the Christians. They're the Christians. And the term Christian came about because the old terms that they had used, perhaps even in derogatory ways, were no longer fitting. Because this was a new gathering of people from all different backgrounds, ethnic, religious, social, whatever. And they were all gathering together. This is, this is, look over at, at chapter 13 with me, okay? 
Chapter 13, verse 1, there's some names you can say, why are you having us read this? Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now there were in the church that was in Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menin, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. You know what that is? If you go on our church website, we have, we have a page on our website that says our pastors, and it has me and Eric pictured there. This is, this is the group of pastors of the church in Antioch, and they represent four different ethnic groups from three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And this is just a few years after Jesus has died and rose again, and God is bringing together a group of people that are from every different background. And they're not just gathering together with people that look differently than them. They're gathering with people who look differently than them and sharing leadership with people who look differently than they do. And in a place that was incredibly diverse, the church flourishes. Did you know that by 197 A.D., so less than 200 years after Jesus' birth, about 150, 160 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, Tertullian writes about the predominant number of believers in the cities, saying that even some cities are practically made up of all the belie- all believers. But the church flourished in broken places like the Roman cities so much that they became the majority in these places. One of our our values here at Faith Church is that we welcome everyone because Jesus can rescue anyone. And that means that if you're religious or irreligious, if you're black or white, if you're poor or rich, if you're moral or immoral, Jesus can save you and change you and redeem you. When I moved to Chandler... Moved from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Before that, I'd lived in Nashville, Tennessee. Never lived in a, in a town or a city smaller than hundreds of thousands of people. You know what I thought I was doing when I moved to Chandler? I thought I was moving to Mayberry. <laughs> I thought I was stepping into the Andy Griffith show. And I was here just a very short time, and I realized that Chandler is not Mayberry, Right? Because I had in my mind that because Chandler is a little bit more rural and it's surrounded by cornfields and soybean fields, I had it in my mind that the people here would be predominantly religious, and I kind of thought that my job was going to be to come here and stir up a revival among the religious. I thought I was moving to Jerusalem, but in reality, I was moving to Antioch. I was moving to a broken place. And my job is, I was half right, my job is to stir up a revival among the religious. Those of you that are here that know Christ, that you need him to be vibrant and working in your life and bringing about this transformation. But also, my calling is to reach the irreligious. And the gospel is powerful enough to transform the most broken of places. To not only revive the little churches and the hamlets and the towns and the rural places throughout our nation, but to reach the most broken places like Chandler, where addiction reigns supreme, where one of the most successful businesses in the town is the liquor store. God can work here, just like he worked in Antioch. And people of all different ethnicities and people of all different backgrounds, people who are religious and irreligious, God can work among them. 
In fact, some of our most effective ministry has been among the most broken of us. When the gospel begins to take off in Antioch, don't miss this, okay? When the gospel begins to take off in Antioch, Barnabas is encouraging people. What does he do? He's encouraging people to have purpose of heart and to pursue Christ and cleave unto him. Don't fade back from him. Stay after him. He comes and he talks to the religious, those that have already put their faith in Christ, and he says, have purpose of heart and stay close to Jesus. And man, that's what we got to do. That is what we got to do. Barnabas doesn't show up and say, hey, listen, here's all the things that we're going to do to change the city of Antioch. He just encourages the believers, have purpose of heart and stay close to Jesus. Have purpose of heart and stay close to Jesus. He encouraged, he encouraged, he encouraged. His name means encourager. That was his job. That's what he was doing, encouraging the believers to stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. But then Barnabas begins to look around and he notices that there's all these irreligious people, there's all these Greek people, there's these Jewish people, and he needs someone who can help him. There's so much work that needs to be done. And so he says, who can I get who can help me reach the Jews and the Greeks, the religious and the irreligious? He says, I know who I'll get. I'll go find Saul. And so verse 25 says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Now hold on. Why were, they, why were they in Antioch in the first place? What did verse 19 tell us? Why were they in Antioch? It's okay, you can talk. I know we're Baptists, but you can talk. What, why were they in Antioch? They were fleeing persecution that arose after who was killed? If you go back to read Acts chapter 7, you see where Stephen is hauled out by the religious leaders. And they pick up stones to throw at him. You know who's standing there? And so they start to take off their coats so they can get freedom of motion in their arm and they can really hurl these rocks at Stephen. Paul, Saul, says, I'll hold your jacket. I'll hold your coat. And these people who end up running because of what God is allowing to happen, they're afraid and, and God is using this horrible thing that happens to the church to spread them out. God then brings one of the men who was standing there as Stephen bled to death to disciple them. They went to Antioch because of Stephen's death. They started telling others about Jesus, and a church begins to form. And in this time, Saul is saved. He sees a vision of Christ. His life is transformed. He disappears for a while, studying the scriptures and seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He feels like God's calling him to ministry, but nobody wants him around because he's dangerous. But then Barnabas says, I know who's perfect for Antioch. Saul, the murderer, the persecutor of the church. And he goes and he gets that guy and he brings him to Antioch. And there in Antioch, Saul, who starts to be known as Paul, starts to disciple these people and taking what he knows about the Jewish religious text and taking his background as a Roman citizen, also a Greek. He disciples both Jew and Greek. Roman and barbarian, moral and immoral, religious and irreligious. Can I tell you, God has a sense of humor or at least a keen sense of irony. When it comes time to disciple these people, he brings in Paul. Can I tell you a secret? I've been trying to keep it from you, but 
Some of you that God has saved out of the most broken of circumstances, he wants to use you to reach the people who are still in those circumstances. Some of you that, that you sold the drugs that have enslaved people in this town, God wants to use you to break the bonds of enslavement off of you. Some of you, you've been a part of the problem. God wants to use you to be a part of the solution. And just like he took Saul and he brings him full circle to disciple these people who come to know Jesus because of the persecution that pushes everyone out of Jerusalem, he wants to use you in this place, in this community. He wants to do that. You know, another one of our values is, another one of our values is we know the gospel changes everything because it's changing us. And when God's word, his grace, his love is changing us, it is the very best sermon to preach to this community of broken people. There, there are a whole network of people in this community they don't know me, they don't want to hear from me, they won't listen to me, but they will listen to you. They see Jesus change your life, and they'll say, what's that about? There's a whole network of people that if I showed up, I'd be an unwelcome guest. But God can use you to get into that place, into that family, into that network, and he wants to use you to bring about the redemption and transformation of this city. Because God's going to not only reach people from all backgrounds, he's going to use people from all backgrounds to reach others from all backgrounds. Who, who was it that he used at the beginning of this? Who was it that, that spoke to these Greeks first? It was men from Cyprus and Cyrene that we don't even know their names. Guys that, that everybody else would be like, oh, they're, they're the outsiders. And God uses that to bring about good for Antioch. And you might think that you're an outsider, and you might think that you're disqualified, and you might think that because of the things that you've done or the things that you never learned, that you can't have a place. But that's exactly what God wants to use. Exactly what he wants to use to bring about transformation. I read you John chapter 4 earlier, a passage about Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman. A little bit earlier, it tells us that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Sends the disciples on an errand while they're gone. He speaks to this woman, talks to her about her sin, doesn't glance over the fact that she's been divorced five times and is currently living with man number six. She goes back to the town and she says, you, you got to come see this guy. And they're all like, oh, great. This is number seven. We found another one. And she's bringing everybody back. She's leading them back to Jesus so that they can see that the Messiah has come. Meanwhile, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And he said, Master, we brought you some food. Don't you want to eat? He goes, no, I, I got food to eat you don't even know about. And they're like, what? Who? What? And Jesus says, you have a saying that four months from now it'll be the harvest. I say that the harvest is now. Look out on the fields, for they are ready to harvest. Let me tell you, God's been doing a work in my heart over the past couple months. And a month ago, I found myself listening to this pastor preach on John chapter 4. And he pointed out that when he said, look under the fields, 
for they are wide under the harvest. The disciples probably would have said, Jesus, we, we love looking at the fields. I mean, the, the rolling waves of, of grain and harvest time, it's beautiful, but we can't see them because all these Samaritans are coming. You know how Samaritans are. They always show up at the wrong time. These people are just, they're just annoying. Jesus, we're going to send them away, and then you can keep talking to us about the harvest. And Jesus says, no, look under the fields, for they are white under harvest. And he said, Jesus, we can't see the harvest because these people are in the way. That they're a problem. And Jesus says, no, look at the harvest. That is the harvest. When I, when I moved to Chandler, I thought I was moving to Mayberry, and I also didn't understand a lot about the harvest because in the city we have harvest parties. And harvest is like, oh yeah, it's carving pumpkins and bobbing for apples. It's a good time. You're having a great fall. But I moved out here and I drive past all these cornfields and soybean fields. You know what I learned? Now harvest is work. I hear the farmer who lives behind me start up his combine before the sun is up so he can be in the field as soon as the sun is up. I'm driving home and I see the combines out in the field with their lights on so they can get the last bit of the, the harvest out in the field before it rots. It's not a good time. It's work. It's toil. It's reaping all the things that you've been plowing for and planting for. You know, you know what I found in ministry? The harvest is work. And people are work. And it's difficult. And it's hard. But this is the harvest. This is the harvest. And Jesus sends his followers, his disciples, out into places like Antioch, full of people who don't know anything about God. They never heard of the temple. They don't know anything about David and Goliath. They don't know anything about lambs being sacrificed. They don't know any of that stuff. But God wants to save them and use them, change them, and through them transform a city. Because that's the harvest. What was it that, that, that Jesus said to that woman? He says, there's coming a day that we won't worship in Jerusalem or in Samaria. Now he's talking about there's coming a day we're going to worship the Lord in heaven all together, but until then we're worshiping him around the world. Here we are in Chandler, worshiping the Lord together. People from all different walks of life, from all different types of backgrounds, and this is the harvest. I'll be honest, some of y'all are work. You got problems. You don't know a whole lot about God. But this is the harvest. In the same life that is full of brokenness and the consequences of bad decisions and doesn't know a whole lot about God, God wants to use that life to reach the next one and the next one and the next one. Because what happens every time you harvest? Every time you harvest, you get seeds for next season. Every time you harvest, you got the seeds to plant next spring. And Faith Church, if we're going to continue planting seeds, we've got to keep harvesting. We've got to keep doing the work. One more of our values. We pray bold. We work hard. We praise God for the harvest that he gives us. And then we repeat. And the last 36 years of Faith Church has been a series of praying bold prayers. God, help me plant a church in the Evansville area. God, give us a place where we can meet. God, bring, give us a building where we can meet in. God, give us, God, please, God, 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 bold prayers, hard work, 
praising the Lord, ripping. Because the harvest of this season gives us the seeds for next. And right now, Faith Church, we are in a, we're in a time of transition. We're in a time of difficulty. We're in a time of hard work. But there is a harvest all around us. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.